0: Good morning. Merry Christmas. Peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Well, it's good to be here in the house of God, and it's good to have some folks back here that uh, don't always aren't always with us, but glad you're here. I'm planning kind of a dual uh, focus in the morning message, uh, beginning with a, just a brief look at God incarnate. God Almighty visiting us in the form of a baby. Uh, we know that He came to live here and to have a short ministry, um, offering us salvation by death on the cross, resurrection and all. And uh, I've just um, I've took a title here from our, our recent Sunday school lesson for a message with God nothing is impossible. And so we'd like to look at that impossibility that you know God refers to in that text. And then I'll follow up with a, a kind of a report, observations on a few things that uh, God was trying at least to teach me during our time in Kurdistan. So back to this passage that Matt read in 1 John 4. Uh, this week in my personal devotions, uh, I was making my way through the, the, the Bible, and I, I come across this, this text here that uh, uh, Matt read for us, and I'm not going to read it again, but God calls us to, to try the spirits here. Um, the King James uh, doesn't have the word spirit spirits capitalized in these verses, and so it seems obvious that he's re- referring to human spirits. Uh, influences and teachings of men that oppose or differ from what the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures record. He's, he calls us to try or examine these spirits and determine if they're of God. And I, I would just guess that most of you are a little like, like me—that you've you've never wrestled much with this thing of 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 God being able to come in the form of a baby. I, I don't think that I've ever questioned that God can do this and did this. Um, He limited himself and came as a baby. But apparently that's not true of many. And it certainly wasn't true of of a lot of people when he did come in in that era of time. But this this is obviously a doctrine or a belief that is very, very foundational for us to just accept by faith. And he said, here, try the spirits. And if they're not agreement with what God said and how he did it, they're false spirits. Every spirit that confesses confesseth not that Jesus confesseth that, that Jesus is come of the flesh is of God. Uh, a few more comments from our, our recent uh, Sunday school lessons about this incarnation of God. So we we assumed that Mary was likely, you know, this teenage young girl. And when she had this visitation of the angel, and, and she was told that, that you're going to be with child. Uh, Thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son. Now, she obviously knew enough about procreation to also know that this isn't the way it usually works. This isn't the way it usually happens. And because of that, she appropriately, I think, responds to the angel and says, how can this thing be, seeing I know not a man? And and down through the history of the ages, yes, all the way back to our first parents, there, there had never been a conception before without a man knowing a woman, like King James puts it. In fact, uh, it was, it is the way, it is the method that God Almighty uses or has created and established and encouraged for the human race to, to reproduce. It's his divine order on how man is commanded to take dominion of the earth and multiply. And so Mary, and I think along with her parents and siblings and the, the Jewish community, even the the whole human race at that time, I, I think they had a valid reason to ask this question. So how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Those of you who have daughters, sisters, you can Im- Easily imagine the trauma and distress that this angel's visit had to bring into that family when their lovely, chaste daughter or sister came to them and said, "I'm, I'm having a baby," and and throughout this process of accepting the reality for Mary and for her family while not knowing a man. I think this thing of, of this, these words and this belief and acceptance in a big, sovereign, powerful God, but with God, all things are possible. Nothing is impossible for me. With God, Nothing shall be impossible. Yeah, even though it never happened in the prior 4,000 years, and even though it hasn't happened in the 2,000 or more years since, and even though it isn't the normal way that God usually brings babies into existence, we we simply accept that God can do this. God has done this. God has the right. He has the ability. And if he chooses to... To, uh, to poke a finger into our, our, our spoke of wheels that go around in our minds, he, 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 has, he has the right to do that. He's, after all, God. And we shouldn't even begin to think that we have him figured out or that he's somehow limited to our rationality and, and ways of thinking. He created us, and he has the ability, he has the right to do things like this. I think it's just really important that we don't ever forget that with God, the abnormal is really possible. He, he does, and He can, and He will do some things at times that are completely off the charts. And we, by faith, just accept that He can do that, and He does do that, and He's able to do that. A number of years ago, um, we had a logger come into the wooded area back there where Doug's live and, and log out some trees. And it obviously hadn't been harve- the trees hadn't been harvested for a number of years, and some of them were really large, uh, more than 100 feet high. Some of them were, you know, three foot wide or more at the base. And many of you who've, who've, who've after you've cut a tree like that down, you've you've counted the rings on those trees, and uh, we you know scientists tell us that one circle in that in that uh, those multiple circles there uh, represents a year of growth for a tree. I can I can easily accept the, the scientists explanation for that, and I, I accept that. But I, but I pose to us a question. So when God. When God created trees on the third day of creation, trees that were equally the size of those we cut down in Doug's woods, trees in the garden that were already matured, were already bearing fruit, had apples and oranges hanging on them. And I ask us this morning, can we, by faith, believe that God could create that in a normal 24-hour period? Of course we can because we believe in a God that is big and powerful and easily able to do that. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 12 and 13, and the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed is within itself after his kind and God saw that it was good and the evening and the morning were the third day. Now I'm suggesting if We think that God needed more hours that day to to do this. I'm suggesting we're not nearly as big in our faith as Mary was here, as a teenage, young girl. For with God, nothing is impossible. Mary, um, just a little bit more about her. She says in verse 46 of Luke chapter 1, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. And she keeps going on there in that passage, talking about this big God and his ability and his visitation to his people. I'm just really encouraged by the faith of that young lady, her trust in a big God. I'm going to now transition a bit and give you a brief report on our time in Kurdistan. And I need to begin that with a a confession. Um, I think it was the Saturday before we left for the Bible conference for a number of weeks prior to that, we had uh, been noticing that someone was apparently shacking up down in a wooded area below our shop there in Morgantown, and uh, a, you can't really see much of a shack there, but it's actually just a, a black tarp over top of a big tree that had fallen down, and we have kind of been watching that. and. Um, Every now and then, we'd see this, this man walk out of the woods there, and he was always carrying a backpack. And I thought, well, first I thought, well, he's probably just trapping along the creek there. And, and Doug said, no, nah, he's not trapping. And I didn't think a lot about it, but I kept seeing him down there. And uh, Doug and JD were pretty sure that this, this tent dweller was, was up to some no good down there. I don't know what drugs smell like. Uh, but j D. said he's sure it's something other than coffee that he's brewing down there. So anyway, uh, the Saturday before we left, I had done a, a drive there through there for push trying to push some deer towards Doug and the other end. and um, I was walking by this this tarp or tent, and I was pretty sure there was someone in there, but I didn't have the guts to stick my head in there and and uh, have it chopped off and so i I smelled some cigarette smoke, and I was pretty sure someone in there. I whistled, and I might have yoo-hooed. I'm not sure, but no one came out, didn't get a response, and so I went back in my pickup truck. I had parked it up by BB's and had started to drive from on that side of 23. Anyway, I brought my truck down through, and I came down to the intersection there, 23 and the road there, and here there was two ladies walking out of the wooded area there, and so I hopped out of my truck, and I says, what are you, what are you all doing back there? And she says, oh, we we live back there with my fiance. I said, you live back there? I said, that's private property. You really can't just, you know, shack up anywhere you'd like. Well, she said it's it's, it's not posted, and, and we checked that out, and, you know, we looked around, and it does have trespassing signs, so that's where we live. So we, we talked just a little bit more, but in essence, I told her they better not stay there, and if they If I continue seeing them there, I'll I'll probably report it. These people didn't look just the nicest. They were a little disheveled and dirty. Um, But a few few hours later, my, my conscience started. bother me, and I asked my wife, so, so what would Jesus do when he saw some condition like that and he met those kind of folks, what, what would Jesus offer to them? And I, I'm pretty sure he would have attempted to meet some kind of need in their life, give them some kind of hope rather than just, you know, saying, uh, you know, get out of here or else." And so I'm, I'm currently looking for another opportunity to talk with her or him. And even though I, I'm still not quite sure how to best help somebody like this, I also know that it doesn't make a lot of sense to travel all the way across the waters to give out blankets and food parcels and ignore the folks right next door. And so I confess, I, I, I came up short here. There were six of us who traveled together to the conference. Uh, this is us taking, well, Regina's not on the photo. I think she was probably taking the photo, but uh, we were having a church in our motel room last Sunday morning. Uh, the believers there at Duhok, where the church is established, they, uh, their, yeah, their, their normal Sunday is a, a Friday um, the Kurdish culture has their their, their um, Lord's Day on, the, on, on Friday, and um, they usually gather for church on Sunday evening. But we were having church together here, just the six of us. Um, I was teaching Sunday school the same lesson that you all looked at eight hours later. Um, James Miller, James and Pauline, they're from Tennessee, he did the preaching that morning, and Jason King... Uh, He was with us representing the committee that oversees the work that Summit View is doing, and of course, Leroy Lapp with his heir. So the Brotherhood that uh, asked for this teaching, um, they… this is a a photo of the conference in session. They asked for uh, some teaching on how to study the Bible, so Bible study methods, and and, uh, Leroy Lapp taught that. Uh, James Miller did a study on the the book of 1 John. And I did uh, four sessions, one on prayer and fasting, one on the tithe and New Testament giving, and then two on marriage. Um, you know, while I, do pre- I, I enjoy preaching here at Peckway, preaching there is, is really energizing and rewarding. Uh, these, these new believers are very, very attentive. No one, to my knowledge, ever slept in any of the four events, each of them three hours long. And a number of you have told me uh, your experience at teaching at a place like Children's Church uh, in Coatesville. You you have these familiar Bible stories that you've known ever since you were very young, but to to tell those to tell Jonah in the well to a child for the first time and having his <laughs> having. Having him at the edge of his seat just drinking it in, that, that's, that's a very rewarding experience. A captive audience, when proclaiming the Word of God, does something for the teacher, and you know that. Something that, unfortunately, a, a sleepy, disinterred yawn will never do. Most of the people in this photo... Other than the pastors and their wives, uh, this was the first time that they were at Bible conference. Most in this attendance had just recently been saved and started attending church. Leroy, he he organizes a conference like this every four months and has been going back and forth ever since 2012. These believers, they refer to themselves as the Anabaptist Church in Kurdistan. This, this model of, of doing mission work that some of you does is, is quite different from what we would have heard Jonas Byler give us uh, in how AMA is doing it. It's an effort to, to work alongside of an already established church, help them with teaching, instruction, literature, counsel, etc. There, there are incidentally couples uh, from the states over there in that area, uh, just several hours from where we were there in Duhok. Uh, there's uh, a couple or two that represents DNI, and there is also a couple or two that represents uh, the Mid Atlantic congregations, and they're both focusing on a more traditional church plant, uh, such as what we're used to more with AMA. And I, I just really appreciate and, and applaud those kind of efforts when you try to, to take the gospel and, and call people to um, a, a way of life that conforms to Jesus Christ. I, I just really appreciate that. The, the, the first congregation that some of you uh, was working, is working with was established there in Duhuk. Um Today, there are at least four additional uh, churches that have grown out of that church um, in Erbil, which is the capital of, of uh, Kurdistan, uh, about two hours from where we had the conference. There's a church in Mosul. Uh, Mosul is about forty five minutes from where we had this conference, and Mosul is ancient Nineveh. Kabani um, is another, is a third church, and that's about twelve hours uh, away in northern Syria. And then Suleimani, uh, the fourth church is about four hours from Duhok. In addition to these five churches, a few months ago, Leroy and some Bible teachers traveled to Lebanon uh, to a Bible conference, and again, as he's planning to do one in February. There's also requests from a region in Turkey where there's just a few believers, and they're asking for a conference. They, they're asking for someone to come and teach them the scriptures. Each of these five churches have ordained leadership. In fact, on the last day of conference, uh, Bishop Bazod ordained uh, six men. Maybe I should have taken this one here. So I, after, during this ordination time, I thought about this passage from, from uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, For this cause left I thee in Crete that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city." So these were the six men that that Pastor Bazad uh, ordained. Uh, some of them he just gave additional charges to what they had. I think there was one or two that had uh, maybe a deacon in charge before that. Uh, the brother on your left holding the flowers, his name is Eloi. He was ordained uh, to serve in the church in Duhok Church, and um, this is the first time that I was ever at an ordination that one was given flowers for his uh, honor of the call to serve. I think his parents had given him the flowers, and um, I don't, And his parents aren't part of the church, but anyway, he, he, he was very happy with his flowers. You'll remember that when Hosea Troyer was here a couple weeks ago, he thought maybe our ordination should be a little more joyful. Well, this is how this one was. Lots of clapping and celebrating. We met with the, with the Dewhook Church then in, yeah, it was Duhok Church that evening for, for church services. And afterwards, the ladies had decorated a cake in celebration of these ordinations and they had them all join hands on one knife to cut the cake. Uh, this, this brother Eloy on the left, um, on your left. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't know what his name was at the beginning of the conference, and even after we, you know, you meet all these people, it's hard to remember the names. Um, but by the time the first event was over, so we had the first afternoon of conferences, uh, my wife had already nicknamed him Dave Lapp. So we, throughout the week, we'd talk about Dave Lapp. And um, this this the conference was set up in such a way that you had forty-five minutes of preaching and then you had fifteen minutes of question and answers. And as soon as the preacher was finished with his forty-five minutes, there was hands going up everywhere with questions and comments and things they wanted to say. And uh this Dave Lapp, he um he didn't bother raising his hand. He just started talking usually. I want you to know, Dave, though, that uh Pastor Eloy, being named and being uh, named in your honor is actually a compliment. The, the, these folks could hardly wait to talk about Christ. They could hard. They had an obvious burning desire. to know it better. This Dave Lapp, uh, it might have been a little, it might have been more appropriate if he would have left a few others talk sometimes, but I did appreciate their passion. This uh, this young lady here and her husband, um, first time they were at Bible Conference, Pastor Bazad, he would always translate what? what the English teachers were saying. He would translate it into Arabic, and then he would also translate it into a Kurdish tongue. And so it took him about three times the amount of words and time that it took us to say our thing. But um, this this husband, he didn't understand either of those uh, three languages, and so his wife sat beside him translating into yet a fourth language. At the end of every one of our messages, she had a full page of questions written down. Some of them came from her husband, but he couldn't talk the Arabic tongue, and so she asked them for him. And due to, due to time constraints, we didn't nearly always, we weren't nearly always able to hear all her questions. I think it was at the end of my first session on marriage, she asked, in the situation where one of the partners comes to Christ, in a marriage, uh, marriage partner, that is, if one of the partners comes to Christ, on the other is not. She asks, can she remarry or does she have to stay with the partner who is not a Christian? Is one bound to an unbelieving spouse? And so I asked her, I knew where we were gonna go in the next session, so I asked her if I could address that in the next session, and she was, she was fine with that. And so after, in, in that final session on marriage, uh, we took quite a bit of time looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where this actually was. This actually was an obvious condition in a new believer's church there in Corinth. And, and, as, and as you know, as, as you taught that text, uh, the believers, and this was primarily the pastors and their wives, uh, you would over and over hear the words, Amen, Amin, this is their word for Amen. Uh, just readily accepting God's word. Even in a less than ideal situation, and the text, as you remember, there in First Corinthians seven, if at all possible, Paul is, is 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 asking the unbelieving spouse to stay with the believing spouse, hoping, or 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 with the uh, with the um, even in less ideal less than ideal circumstances, hopefully making an impact on the unbeliever that she gets or he gets to. Uh, relate with day after day, her testimony, or his testimony, speaking to that. I ended that particular session, again reiterating the creation principle of one man and one woman for life till death makes a party. And while we can't always make the decisions for one partner, for the other partner in, 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 in the in the in the union. Uh, there may be times when one does break his vow and walks away. But you know, we end up we come to the end of that teaching and we just we just we just accept the fact that it's never appropriate or, or permissible to remarry while the first partner is yet living. And I just distinctly remember coming to the end of that you know session and there was just a, a kind of a subdued quietness as they pondered the words of of God. Uh, These pastors, they have a task in front of them, much like John the Baptist did when he told Herod that that he's living in adultery. Uh, They minister daily to a culture where men have taken multiple wives, and they have new believers coming into their Bible studies, probably almost on a weekly or monthly basis, that are remarried, they have children in second and from second or third marriages, and this is this is this is real for them. And for them, for for them to preach the, the full gospel as God calls us to is it's just a little different than it is for me to stand up here and preach that very same text, because I, I'm not at all concerned. I, I don't even I don't even think about it that you know Herod might be asking for my head on a platter, but this is this is real for them. This is um, a photo of Pastor Sinan and his wife. They were members of the church there in Duhook when we were there four years ago. And we had he was then a deacon, but now he was given additional charge um, so that he could more effectively lead the church in the, in the city of Mosul. And I told you that Mosul is uh, ancient Nineveh. I'd love to visit that area, but um, We're not allowed. We're not allowed in there. Uh, In fact, Pastor Bazad isn't allowed into Nineveh, uh, into Mosul either. But because Sinan comes from a a kind of a Catholic background, uh, not the not the uh, Muslim background, uh, he's he's welcome there, and so he can go in there and and teach and preach and do church. So it's it was encouraging for me for us to to again see. Someone like Sinan being able to, to, um, to preach repentance in Nineveh. I'm really encouraged with uh, Sinan and his work. He spends four days a week in Mosul. Each day he's doing Bible study and teaching a different group of believers. He has, I think, 60-some families that he's ministering to. And right now, they're still doing kind of like house churches, uh, one, one of those days of the week, but he hopes to soon establish uh, a, more primitive, a more permanent uh, singular location where they can all meet together. This one, this photo here, well, I guess it's the same photo you looked at earlier, but on your far, on your far right, uh, second to the last one there is, is uh, Pastor Jagar. He's the one with uh, the plaid shirt, not a suit here. Uh, We met him and his wife also four years ago. Soon after we came home in 2018, Jagar, his wife, and and their four children moved to Gabbana, which is uh, northern Syria, uh, 12 hours away from Duhok here. This is the first time he was able to come back to Bible conference. And uh, he, he currently is serving over, I think it's around 60, somewhere between 60 and 70 families also, and um, they're in the process of a, building a church. This past summer, they had a, a children's, uh, children's ministry for all the children in the village. I think about 100 of them came from, from, their, from the folks that he has Bible study with. But there was another, I forget how many more, there was a lot of children. He showed me a short video clip of them all dressed up in, in white sh- shirts, I think it was, or dresses, I forget, and they were singing. I c- obviously couldn't understand it, but definitely make an impact in, in, that, in that city of Kabata, in, in northern Syria. And you know, this, this trip over there, again, just reminded me how wide the doors have opened for us to, to minister in lands and in cultures that just a few years ago were almost completely closed. I'm again grateful for ministries such as uh, Grace Press and Christian Light, who just print volumes of literature for places like this. This was a this is a photo of one of their, I think this was in the Church of Verbile, which we had visited. The, Evening, the evening before we flew out of Erbil, um, there's a, a stateside brother, and some of you would know him if I would give you his name. Who has offered to all five of these churches and their leadership teams? He has offered them unlimited resources of literature like this. Um, in pastors' conference that we had before the, uh, the uh, pastors' meeting, before we had that we had before conference started. Uh, so, there was like, I don't know, 12 pastors sitting around with, with the three of us that went over. And they again asked for, I think it was four or 5,000 Bibles that they needed to, for, their, for their churches to pass out to, to their um, people. And so you have all these Bibles going over there. You have this brother who's, who's offered a, an open checkbook for any kind of literature that they might want, that they could offer. And uh, none of us can, can read these titles here so I had to ask Pastor Bazod uh, what they were. The one on the far right is, uh, is one of Simon Schrock's books. I think it was uh, where it has integrity gone. Uh, the second from your left is, is one of Gary Miller's, and I can't remember the title of it. The one on the, in, the, in the center there is, is pretty self-explanatory. That's uh, the story of Dirk Willems, who, as you know, he had been escaping from imprisonment. He was on his way. He found a a way of escape across the water. The ice was thin, and he went down, and after—or no, he didn't go down. He got across, but he looked back and he saw his captor go down, so he goes back and and, um, rescues him. And eventually, he was recaptured and died as a martyr. And so you can only imagine how stories like Dirk Willems makes or has has an impact on a woman like this. Uh, Regina was visiting with her a little bit. This was during distribution that we were doing one day, handing out blankets and food parcels. As I remember her her story, um, she was used and abused by ISIS. She eventually was able to escape, along with, I think, three or four of her children, but her husband and the other four children are still with ISIS in captivity. One of the women at a prior conference, I think the, I think the, um, the teaching that in that particular session was on forgiveness. And she asked the teacher if the Bible requires her to forgive What ISIS did to her is she required to forgive the abuses and rapes and murderings So as I conclude this, as we finished up and came home and we reflected on the event, I do admit that um, I admit to some disappointment and maybe just a bit of frustration with some of these believers. The men still smoke, at least far too many of them do. Regina made the observation that our motel where we and, and they stayed at, for the conference smelled a whole lot better when the believers left. The women still wear jewelry. Some of them aren't wearing a veiling very consistently or responsibly. I don't know. I'm not sure how much these new Christians know about separation and nonconformity. In some ways, it's apparent that their minds have been renewed, but doesn't look like some of the Bible commands have yet reached their heart and transformed them outwardly. I'm not sure that it's making all that much difference in a resulting conformity to Christ sometimes. And so, you know, as I, as I wrestle with some of that disappointment and frustration, I was reminded of a a phrase of song that I remember was fairly popular, at least with me, back in my late teens and early 20s. This is just a phrase out of it. It says, the pace is not what matters. It's the direction that you go. Keep your feet upon the path and your eyes on the Lord. I trust this morning that we together agree that salvation, being saved, is defined better as a journey versus an event. Sure, it takes an event to start a journey, but Jesus says over and over again to us to follow him, to walk in the light, to walk by faith, to walk circumspectly to continue in the faith, continue in the grace of God, and and, you know, it just goes on and on. And I think, and I think you'll agree with me here, that direction, when one is on a journey, is so important. If we expect to reach the goal, direction is extremely important. And so so I think about these folks and I think about my life. It's appropriate, it's even sobering for me to think about where I started my journey, what I was given as I began the journey, what things I had going for me right at the beginning of the journey. I had some things going for me that these folks know nothing about. By God's grace, I was saved, sheltered, spared from a lot of oppressions and cruelties, pagan practices, and the list could go on, that these folks were in their lives. Conditions that God spared me from. You know, myself, like many of you, We are here this morning having decades, even hundreds of years, of godly ancestry. Godly teaching and training have been in our ancestry for hundreds of years. I I think I'm correct in saying I'm the 10th generation Stolzfus in, in a free land of America where faith in Jesus Christ all through those years has been encouraged, and been lived by every one of those sets of, ten sets of parents prior to me. My my forebears took a risk of coming to America so that their sons wouldn't have to serve in conscriptive conscriptive military. And as I read my history and I, I read my legacy, never once do I read that one of my grandparents separated. Or lived with one of my grandfathers, lived with multiple wives. I don't know that I ever heard or read that my grandmothers or their daughters were abused. Unless, unless I go back in history long enough. If you go back in our history long enough, we soon become aware that our parents weren't always godly. Some of you remember Jonathan teaching us that, yeah, at one time our parents were far from God. History would describe them as barbarians. And the word barbarian is used to describe one who acts in brutal or cruel methods. That was our parents, our fathers. To the point of they were savages, lived very primitive and uncivilized. It is believed that our parents were known to be roving bands of marauders, robbers and bandits. And they would go into villages to loot, to steal, and yes, even to kill. It is said that the reason we have both blue-eyed with fair skin and dark eyes with dark complexions is because of this marauding. They would go into these villages and they would steal wives, steal slaves, bring them back, and eventually intermarry with them. At some point in our history, Jonathan tells us, Catholic missionaries found our people. They found our people and had a Bible conference. Our fathers responded to that light and were saved. You ever wonder where you and I would be if that hadn't happened? The missionaries hadn't come. Granddad didn't respond to the light. It's rather sobering. So our fathers began this journey toward God, They set a direction. I wonder how long it took them to shed all their barbaric features and shackles. I wonder if those devoted Catholic missionaries back then also wished for more growth, maturity, conformity to Christ. Probably. I also wonder sometimes how God views my progress and direction these past 45 years. Have I made as much progress in 45 years as they did in four? Have I moved in a good, decisive direction? What about those among us? Yes, even some with hundreds of years of godly ancestry who have taken and set a pace in a wrong direction and are no longer as godly or Christ-like as they or their parents have been. Their current hunger and thirst after God has significantly abated. And we all know if it's not corrected a direction could result in them being worse off had they never known Christ. Finally, may we concur with the Apostle Paul, as he said in Philippians chapter 3? I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You see, one who is pressing toward a mark has set a pace in a good, profitable direction. So help us, God. Let's kneel for prayer.